Welcome to the Intern Whisperer Live, the show all about the future of work. On today's show, we highlight the four industrial ages and the future of the, of the technology industry. So what are the four industrial revolutions? I got exposed to this concept. I want to say it was probably like five years ago. I had never heard about this. Now, of course, I've heard about industrial um, ages in history. So I definitely got that, but I didn't know that there was a fourth one. And, you know, when we were on one of our team calls, I was asking that, well, no, yeah, it was a team call, you, me, and Ashley. And Ashley said that she had heard about this in college and I was amazed, right? Because I went, wow, I, you know, I'm older than Ashley and here she heard about it in college. And I was going, where was I? So anyway, I wanted to be able to share what this means to our listeners because I venture to say that there's people that don't know what it means also, and I don't think I'm alone. How about you? Did you know about this? I, I feel like I heard it probably sometime in middle school, like, no, no okay, let me phrase, maybe next time I spoke, probably high school, because that's probably the only time I've heard it before. I probably knew about it when I was younger, like way younger than what I am now, but yeah, I, it rings a bell in my head a little bit. Oh, oh my goodness. I'm going to, well, do you mean the fourth industrial age? You feel like you heard about that one or just industrial age period? Like you've just heard. Just like industrial age period. Yeah. 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 Now that I definitely have heard, but not that there was a fourth one. Anyway, here we are. We're on the brink of technological revolution that will fundamentally alter the way that we live, the way that we work and the way that we relate to each other. And if you think about it, there's been a whole lot of things that have happened in the time frame that from your birth to where you are right now. So in its scale, its scope and its complexity, the transformation is unlike anything that we've seen because just think about it. When you open your social channel, something's changed. When you log into your Google account, something's changed. Something changes on your phone. They've got Alexa. They've got lights that are actually taking pictures of us when we go through them. There's just so much that's going on in the world of technology. And we're, we're not even paying attention to the fact that it's, it's really, I want to say even intruding maybe on our privacy, but we're not covering that in this show, just so you know. Okay, so we do not know, we do not yet know just how it's all going to unfold. Is it really going to be a rise of the robots? Are we going to see the Terminator? I don't know. But one thing is really clear. The response, it has to be integrated and comprehensive, and it needs to involve all of the stakeholders around the world. So it's governments, it's citizens, it's every, every country that is represented in the world. They're all a part of this because whether it's global warming or you know how we get our water, it all matters. And so let's highlight the first and the second industrial revolution. Now, most of us all have heard about this in school, like in your history classes. So the main features involved in the industrial revolution were technological, socioeconomic, and cultural. So you have to think about what were the changes that were going on around those three areas of life for, a, you know, just people, wherever they are. So there was the use of new basic materials like iron and steel. And then the second one, the second industrial age, well, no, I'm kind of getting ahead of some of these things here. The use of new energy sources, which included fuels 
and power such as coal, steam, electricity. And then we go into the invention of the new machines such as the spinning jenny and the power loom. So that it made really, it made it easier to bring clothing to the masses, obviously, that's what we're hearing there. And then a new organization of work now that we now recognize as manufacturing and factory systems. It actually helped put more people to work and produced products at a bigger scale. And then important developments in transportation and communication, which also included steam, locomotion, um, airplanes, telegraph, radio, everything that we had heard about in those first and second areas of the industrial revolution. The increasing application of science to the industry, these technological changes made it possible so that a tremendous increase natural resources and the mass production and manufactured goods was just blowing up like crazy. There's more people in the world. So we have a need for more products, more services. We have to think about how we're going to get that all out to all of these people around the world. So the third revolution used electronics and information technology to automate production. So that's really where, uh, this was like when your parents were, were you know, in their teens, more than one. That's really where we see a lot of this type of technology coming out, not for you, because you're over way over here on the fourth industrial age, that's where you are. So in 1927, the first electronic black and white television was invented and you were doing this research. I found you came up with a fun fact, what was it? It was that a 21-year-old actually created the first electrical black and white television. I, and I actually have the name on my screen. Give me one second. So it was a 21-year-old, and his name was Philip Farnsworth. Hopefully I'm pronouncing that right. But yeah, it's pretty interesting when I found that. And I was like, wow, a 21-year-old made, making something that we all basically use every day. Well, at least, at least I think some of us use every day. But right. it's very interesting. Yeah, so you see, like, you, you wouldn't think a 21-year-old make something something like kind of groundbreaking in my opinion. In 1927, that's the yeah. thing. Like today, no problem. I can definitely see that. But in 1927, who knew that there were really nerds and geeks back then? Of course there were. I'm being rhetorical with that question. But oh my goodness, there was somebody that actually thought that up. Yeah, it's crazy. So in 1997, uh, we also released the first plasma TV. And then we jump over to where computers and small and it, that are being invented and they were purchased by individuals for use in their homes. And that was in the 1970s. So I know it may seem to our listeners that they're going, well, wait a minute, you just were talking about 1927 and then 1997. And now we're over here where it's 1970s. Yeah, there's been so much that's going on in the world. It's just overwhelming here. Unbelievable. Yeah. So I noticed that there's a big, big focus on things that are um, TV. I don't think TV is a very interactive type of technology, honestly. I mean, you get together with a group of people, but you're all staring at one thing. And to me, it's very similar to a computer. Um, computers are meant to, I th think, be used by individuals. And I think TVs to a certain extent are also, because it also doesn't necessarily create conversation unless you're going to the Super Bowl. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah. Yeah. So in 1977, com personal computers 
were beginning to hit the market and Apple introduced their Apple II line of computers. I bet you weren't even born at that time. I was not, no. <laughs> no, I don't think so. And then in 1973, the Global Positioning System, which is the full name for GPS that we actually use in our car, became fully operational in 1995. And what was super interesting to me is that it was created by the US Air Force and they were the ones that operated it. I think, what do you think about that? Oh, you're muted. That's pretty interesting. That's, that's pretty interesting, especially that's not, I remember I saw a little bit of research that we did. That's like one of the other things though. That's like one of the main things that the government used. Cause I, we did see a trend I think at least I saw that the government making these products and then they're like, let's give it to the public and see how they handle it. So it's pretty interesting how that process works. And like, I'm not sure if you're seeing it that much now, but it's pretty interesting to see how back then how it was. Yeah, I agree. And what is, I, I think that maybe some people may not be aware the government has obviously a large budget so they can use that budget for things that are more futuristic and ways that we can either bring people together. It's about disseminating information also, I think is what's going on here. Um, whether it's going to be GPS on your car, you know, that's being able to help people navigate around things, TVs, um, radio, all of these things. And what we're seeing with PCs is um, there's a lot of interest by the government. So it seems to be a way to communicate to the masses is what my thoughts are. I guess we'll find out if any of our guests want to be able to drop us a note in any any drop us a note in any of our shows. That would be pretty amazing too. Yeah. Hear their feedback on that. So, which came first, the World Wide Web (WWW) or the internet? What do you think? Now you are at an advantage. You did participate in pulling research for this, but that's okay. You can let our our guests wonder if you really know. What do you think? Before beforehand, I would have said the internet, but now I think it's I think it's still the internet. I could I could be wrong, but I think it's still the internet for me. Because I know if the, if it wasn't because like World Wide Web is like something that is already in the internet. Because like mm -hmm. without World Wide WW, the World Wide Web doesn't really exist without the internet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they kind of go hand in hand. So um, the internet is a global computer network that runs standardized communication protocols, while the WWW, WWW consists of public sites connected to the internet. So who are the brains behind all of this? A lot of people. This was even more interesting. You and I were both pulling the, the research on this and, and I was, um, I just didn't know how much I didn't know until I was actually going back and looking at this from a historical perspective. History cites two scientists, Robert Kahn and Vinton Cerf as the developers of the transmission control protocol and the internet protocol and then a communications model that this was a communications model that set standards for how data could be transferred and, or transmitted between multiple networks. The World Wide Web is credited to a scientist called Tim Berners-Lee. 
And while it is often confused with the internet itself, the web is actually just the most common means of accessing data online in the form of websites and hyperlinks. So your browsers. Yeah, we all browsers, but you know, we need the internet to be able to connect to all of these things too. And the, the, all of these web addresses are part of how we connect to one another. So now we're gonna jump into the 2000 decade and what are the other technology booms that we saw? So let's, uh, let's take some turns here, kind of questioning each other. I'll let you jump into the gaming industry. Let's see if you can see what I know. Okay. So do you know how many gamers are on the planet? You know, I thought it was 394 billion, but I have a feeling you're gonna tell me it's not as much as I think. It's not, it's actually 2.5 billion gamers on the whole planet. So it's pretty interesting stuff. It is. Yeah. And yeah. they make a lot of money, $152 billion. That is like so much money in just one year. One year, you know, game. Yeah, that's really crazy, yeah. And I'm going to go back to this whole concept of how I'm pretty sure the government is behind our games also, right? Because we know that that is one of the things that um, how they train people is through virtual reality, augmented reality. They have a conference at ITSEC that's really very, very um, interesting. And it's filled with all different branches of the military. It's the biggest conference in the world that's in Orlando, Florida where they bring in the latest technology that's out there in training and simulation and in um, virtual and augmented reality. So wow. it's always towards the end of the year, right around November, December. I would tell anybody that if they wanna go and see, see some futuristic um, concepts and how, how the military and people in defense are being trained, that would be a great place to go. Plus uh, they use this also with healthcare industries. So anyway, back to this, the um, eSports, this was interesting too, as a part of the games. That's where people start uh, viewing stars, playing video games. It's exploded in the recent years. And there's over approximately 400 million that tune into eSports. eSports, yeah. the biggest thing with uh, COVID because nobody was able to, well, you know, go in person and watch real games, people playing real games. Mm -hmm. So content streaming. So who is the biggest streaming uh, company out there? Is it um, Hulu? Is it Netflix? Is it Disney? Who do you think it is? I want to say Netflix because I know that I've had a, a subscription. I've been with them for like, I think I want to say for over 15, no, not 15, that's way too long. Like 10 years, since, ever since they started when I remember, I remember we would, me and my mother would get like DVDs over the mail when they used to do that. Remember when they used to do that? They used to get yeah. DVDs over the mail. And now like everything's like on the, your phone or the website or tele, or even like Chromecast, you can connect your, to your phone. So it's pretty interesting. So I think, I would say Netflix, I think they've been around longer, but I could be wrong. Yeah. So Netflix is one of the number, uh, it's an, one of a number of leading streaming services available nowadays. 
they have over 160 million subscribers. I know I have them, they're on my phone. And in January, 2020, Netflix announced that 76 million households watched The Witcher. I have not watched that, have you? I have not, no. So it sounds very futuristic. I don't think it's about witches, but I don't know. I would have to go and watch it. I'm going to now because I'm intrigued about it. And it's making that the most viewed first season of TV ever for the whole organization. So I think you're right. I think Netflix, it was out there. I think it's bigger than Disney, honestly. And, you know, Disney came into the game kind of late, but, you know, I'm sure that they're giving them a run for the money. A lot of people see um, Disney as, a, as an upgraded service. So it may cost more than having Netflix. Not really, I have Disney too. So, you know, it's about the same for streaming. And then there's music streaming. Hmm. I thought this quote by David Bowie was very interesting, that music would soon become like running water or electricity. And I think that's true. I mean, we take it for granted. That's very true, especially, I know for myself, I use Spotify all the time. Whenever I go uh, driving my car, I always put like my Bluetooth and do Spotify. So that is very, that's very like, eerie that he predicted something like that to happen. Yeah. And to me, it makes perfect sense because, well, first off, you know, we had that, it used to be through radios and then came MTV and they had it through TVs. So you're hearing music through TV, but you can stream it, like you said, through your phone as well as in your car. But I think that there's going to be this place where at some point in time, these things could be embedded into us somehow into our, either our ear or something where we'll be able to listen to music that way. You know, you can listen to it on a watch, an Apple watch. Mm -hmm. So wearable IT is gonna be, it's already here, but how does it get integrated with our bodies? That's the thing that huh, it scares me. And also um, I don't, I think it actually will happen. I just if, don't know how it's gonna happen. If I'm speculating, I could totally see the government like ready, like in their labs, like having like subjects planning this right now. I could totally see that happening. So like five, 10 years from now, we're gonna have like on the back of our necks, like, oh, you wanna hear like Ariana Grande or like Justin Timberlake? Boom, oh my God, this, this is a great song. So it's like- all You think it and then it comes on, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, I think that's definitely there. Um, you know, what's making a comeback though is vinyl, you know, real records. And I was talking with Ian, uh, Ian is, he's moved on to another opportunity. However, Ian has this wealth of, of records behind him. They were like in a, uh, in a bookcase and he had all, I don't know, he had to have had like 500 up there. He said he had five record players also. Wow. Find that amazing because the quality is different. I'm not kidding you than how you would listen to it through your phone, even with, you know, headsets. Yeah. Have you have you ever heard a record player? I've I've heard a record player. I know a couple of my friends that on their social media they they actually have like an actual like classic like vinyl player. They play it, and it's like it sound it sounds it's not as quality per se when like on Spotify, but it does sound really good. Like it sounds like a little like nostalgic. Yes. Yeah. That's what I think it is too. Anyway, most of the devices that where we have mobile phones, there's over 5.3 billion mobile phone users. 
Most of these devices are smart smartphones, which were introduced by Apple in 2007, and then they launched their iPhone. The average mobile phone has over 1 million times more memory than the Apollo 11 computer that was um, propelled by Neil, Neil Armstrong in 1969 with his fellow astronauts when it went on the spaceship and it came back. So that is like crazy. <laughs> this little tiny phone has, well, tiny in comparison to something that went on a, a spaceship, you know, to the moon and back. That's, that's just incredible. So now we're jumping into 2020 and there's a multitude of business options with business communications. And just so our listeners know, we are gonna be doing a special on the future of communications and that, you know, stay tuned. You'll wanna know more about what we're gonna do. But communications, as we think about them, it's not just like um, letters, post office, you could have that is certainly one method of communicating. It's emails, which, I don't know, I, in business, we still use email. People use that. But there's also chat bots and then there's Slack, you know, and then there's Asana, we use Asana. There's social media, there's text messages. My goodness, I have so many ways that people communicate with me that it, it can be overwhelming, I think. It's like, okay, where will I find this message? It was it in my Skype account? Was it in Asana? Was it in my Facebook Messenger? Was it in my LinkedIn? I I don't know. It can be anywhere. Yeah, it's crazy how that works now. Because I remember, I know for me, when I was like, like younger, younger, I remember I had to go, I used to text message a lot. So I talk to my friends like in middle school and text message a lot. But now I'm in college now. Well, I've been in college for like almost like four years. So now it's like Facebook, Snapchat, or like Instagram even. So it's, it's crazy how things are, are changing. Like now, now we used to be only like one option, like on, like on TV, you still have like three channels. And now it's like, oh, you want, you want to talk on Facebook? You can talk on Instagram. Oh, you don't have Instagram? Snapchat. Not Snapchat, then what about WhatsApp? So it's, it's crazy how things are like- TikTok. A lot more option. Yeah, TikTok too, yeah. So it's crazy Twitch. how there's a lot more option. And then, yeah. There's just a ton of ways that people want to communicate with each other. So, and then you mentioned WhatsApp, the Facebook owns WhatsApp. I wasn't aware of that until we actually did the research too. And they are about to hit 2 billion users on this. Wow, that's crazy. That is crazy. So we're gonna take a little uh, break right here as we transition to the future of, and to learn more about the fourth industrial age. The Intern Whisperer is brought to you by Cat5 Studios, who help you create games and videos for your training and marketing needs that are out of this world. Visit Cat5 Studios for more information to learn how Cat5 Studios can help your business. Thank you, Cat5 Studios. Welcome back. So, looking towards the future, let's talk about the fourth industrial revolution, which builds on the third revolution, the digital revolution that has been occurring since the middle of the last century. It's characterized by a fusion of technologies. It's kind of a blurring, blurring the lines between the physical, digital, and biological spheres. So today, there are three reasons why today's transformations represent not merely a prolongation of the third industrial revolution, but rather the arrival of a fourth and a distant one, velocity, scope, and system impact. 
So let's let's take a moment for that one because velocity, scope, and systems. I I find that really really interesting here because in the previous one we were talking about how the third was um, where was it? We had physical, digital, and biological spheres, things that we could actually probably touch. You know, there was some type of a real sensory experience going on with there. But when we get into this one, the fourth, we're looking at velocity, scope, and systems. To me, it is that word velocity, it just sounds like it's just going whoosh, super fast right on past us. And that's really where that scaling, the speed, we, I don't know about you, but I get angry sometimes when my phone, I'm going, what the heck, or my computer, why is it so slow? Why isn't it connecting? I do that all the time, yeah. That is the one word that I think about with uh, velocity is that we all want it to be instantaneous. We don't want there to be a de delay. And when they're talking about systems impact, it's really about, um, for me, how I would define that is the complexity of how this phone can interact. It can be a camera. It can be a, a method of you know watching, if you will, any type of um, streaming channels, getting information, it communicate. It's definitely a communication tool, but it's more than so much of that. And to me, what's a little bit scary is that this one phone number, I mean, it stays with me for life almost, kind of like a social security card. Yeah. So I always will come and question this and go, is, is this the sign of the beast? I'm gonna throw that one out there because I don't know, could it be? This one phone is how we track everything. And I think that there's a lot of people that they don't put this phone down until they go take a shower or yeah. they go to sleep, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot. So I really liked how they were defining that with um, that space of velocity, scope, because it can be really big, micros microscopic or macro, you know, it's gonna be a macro scale or a micro scale. And I think that's really what they're talking about with um, scope. So um, I'm gonna jump on this one just to finish this little section out. The speed of the current breakthroughs has no historical precedent. And when it's been compared with previous industrial revolutions, the fourth is evolving at an exponential rate rather than a linear space or a pace. And that exponential, it's like I said, when I wake up in the morning, sometimes I go and I look at anything on this phone, I go, where, where did that get moved to? You know, what was just moved, whether it's something on the web, a social channel, however you're used to looking at your apps, even on your phone, they just, it, it's moving so fast. Yeah, it really is. So it's disrupting almost every industry in every country and the breadth and depth of these changes are really heralding a transformation of entire systems of, of production of how, like, how we get our goods and services, how we eat our food, you know, how we get our clothing. What is it that we're doing? Production is broad also, but then how we manage these things and what is the governance? And I guess you know, even on the governance side, we should be thinking about how um, we'll use the last election that we just had here, where there was a storming of the um, of the White House, and you know, a lot of fingers are pointing over here at, at uh, former President Trump. So, 
there is this place where um, the industrial revolution, the fourth one is really, I think communication is, is the biggest part of it because they shut down his uh, Twitter account because it was so disrupted. Yeah. Caused something that we normally would hear about in third world countries where our government people, Americans went, and it wasn't like terrorists that we're typically thinking of, not like 9-11, it's Americans that went and just went all over the Capitol and inside of the White House. And that had a huge impact on how I think Americans, I know it may seem like we're getting off topic and a little bit we are, but how Americans should be paying attention to what is going on in this day. Who is Who are we having in our office that's over our country, over our cities, over our states? Um, how are we consuming products? You know, because we we're part of the problem, but we can also be a part of the solution. Anyway, I'm getting off of my soapbox here. So I'm gonna let you lead into the next section here. You'll get us back on track. Okay. So the fourth industry was is about more than just technology-driven change. It's more about the opportunity to, to help everyone. That's 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 what I think is probably important. You, that's why I think it's human nature. You just want to help each other. You just want to help. And that includes leaders, policymakers, and people from all income groups and nations to harness the converging technology in order to create an inclusive human-centered future. And I think that's important because it's like I said. We want to be included, especially what we've, we've been through last year, all stuck in our homes, all some of us lonelier than others. We want to be inclusive. We want to be a part of like something. We want to, we want to feel like we're not alone, basically. We want to feel mm -hmm. like we're not alone. So it's important. And that, it, is, it is important. It is significant that technology is kind of helping to like lay the groundwork, the roadwork for that. I think that the key word that you said there was having a human-centered future, not just keyword, but that whole phrase, making sure that we're keeping the human as the priority, not necessarily the technology. We, we can slow this down. We can, you know, use it for good. We can also, it can be the thing that brings us down as a culture. And in the end, it all comes down to people and values. And we need to shape a future that works for all of us by putting people first and empowering them in its most pessimistic dehumanized form. The fourth industrial revolution may indeed have the potential to robotize humanity and thus to deprive us of our heart and our soul. But as a complement to the best parts of hum human nature, creativity, empathy, stewardship, it can also lift humanity into a new collection, a new moral consciousness based on a shared sense of destiny. It is incumbent on all of us to make sure that the latter is what prevails. It ties in just exactly with what you were just saying a few minutes ago. You were talking about how you know you think that we're good, that most people want to do good, that they want to help. Um, I. To a certain degree, I'll say yes to that. I think that groupthink can sway people to go into another direction, uh -huh. as it can put them in the side of good. So we just need to make sure that we're present in this world. We're, we're making sure that we're seeing people around us. Have you ever gone out? This is interesting. 
I was on the leaving this building at night and I saw this man, um, this was just last week. He was, I was coming around where the railroad tracks are. I know you've never been here. You've never been here yet. Uh -huh. I'm walking out and I'm on Pine Street and I'm seeing this man that's running down the street and he's like weaving in and out. There's no cars around, but I'm going, what the heck? This is looks, it looks kind of weird. There's something going on here. And so he's kind of like jumping around on things. And then he goes, uh, swerves around a little bit around the parking garage. And he walks into the middle of the street. <clears throat> he crouches down. He's got a backpack on his head and he has a beanie on his head. He pulls the beanie off, leaves it in the middle of the road, walks over to the right-hand side of the street, dropped his, his, uh, his book bag down and then he went running into another alley. So he, you know, I, I don't know. And out of nowhere came the police. And so I'm just sitting here going, okay, this is really weird. This is the kind of thing that, is there a bomb in this bag? I don't know, because somebody's leaving it on the street. And he, it just, it was really freaky. So I waved down a policeman and I have him come over and I explained to him what happened. And um, so we're opening, he is, not me. He's opening up the bag and looking inside. And he says, well, there's nothing in here, but just some clothes. And that was the thing, like, why? Was the bag, was the book bag stolen? Who knows? The, the point is none of that is really there. But out of that conversation, what he said is, do you know how many cameras are watching you every day when you're in downtown? And I went, no, but I, I actually observe them and I've always paid attention to them. And I would I would challenge everybody that watches or watches our show or listens to it to make sure that when you're outside, because that is part of what the future will look like, we are going to be being watched constantly. We will have um, technology that's, you know, on our phones, it's tracking everything we do. It's on the cameras that are outside, just like in that one scenario that I just shared, where you don't know what's happening. They're in the parking garages, they're in the buildings that you're in, they're in probably your home, whether you have Alexa or whatever. You have things around in even in your home that can track smart appliances, that track things that you're doing. So technology is big is the point of all of this. What type of devices do you have in your home? Do you have any type of uh, motion sensors or anything of that nature? No, me, me and my parents are old fashioned. We don't have any like security. I know my neighbor has like a secu uh, security camera as soon as you walk towards their doors. So I can see, I can see why. Cause like, it isn't, I think it is important to have like security like for your homes, but to a certain point, like you want to feel safe, but like, how safe because like with safety comes with like you're sacrificing something so oh you want to be safe you want to have alexa in your home like oh there may be a chance that someone will be listening to your conversations or like recording what you're doing not recording but recording your like right now oh like they're interested in like like oh caesar's interested in like papa john's okay so i'm gonna go on go on this google on like on his phone he's gonna, there's gonna be an ad for like papa john so he's like like how do they know so like it is like it is there is some sort of sacrifice when it comes into it at the end of the day Mm -hmm. I agree. I agree. And I think that that's, you know, one of the things that we, again, we're going to go back to, it's about maintaining humanity. It's about uh, making sure that you feel you have privacy in your home. 
And what is it that you're willing to do without? Because if you're going to truly go off the grid, you're not going to have a cell phone. You're not going to have a phone that can track everything that you're doing. And you're probably not going to have a regular car either because everything in it is computerized. So you'll be growing your own you know, vegetables, your own food. You'll be having uh, energy that's not on the grid that people can't find you. You'll be walking or using a bike or canoeing if you're near water. Mm -hmm. So it's truly going to be a different experience for those that um, are trying to protect that sense of privacy that they may want to have in their life. And so then there's also the haves and the have nots. Technology has ushered in a host of a bunch of products, services, and business models that many uh, that really target a number of wealthier consumers, such as like drone delivery or car sharing or having your uh, Prime, you know, you want to have Amazon Prime or you want to have anything delivered to you. Like people are delivering food more than ever. I've noticed that there's not as many Lyft and Uber cars um, that are picking people up and taking them places, but there's people that are actually delivering like shipped and other services or getting just um, products delivered to their home because they're not going out. So there's definitely been an increase in those that does separate you know, the masses of people. You have to have money to be able to order and have those things delivered to you. If you don't have that, then you're in the have not category. And these cases have developed where market needs can be met most profitably through the private sector. And that's where we've seen a lot of innovation, but it's built around the economy. People that have money versus those that don't. We have to consider how to enable profitable businesses for underserved populations where they do not exist right now, such as like real-time monitoring of in ecosystem health. So we've got all of these people. I was listening to this on the news when I was driving in where, you know, somebody, uh, I think she was over 65. She's been trying to go and get a shot for COVID. And because she can't go and um, be first in line, she's been on a wait list forever. And she's really one of those people that's um, considered needy of it or you know deserving of it right now and they're wanting to protect but she has not been able to get uh, it's either she calls to make the appointment or it's already been done there's people that have gone in physically i guess and scheduled an appointment she can't get out of her house so there's these different um obstacles that she has where she's not able to to actually care for herself this you know the same way that somebody has again more access to things, whether it's a car or health or you know money to be able to take care of yourselves. So that we have that haves and the have-nots, and that's definitely uh, having an impact on the economy and how we um, use technology. And then the next one is the economic and labor disruption. So, oh my goodness, here there's been so much that's been written about the impact that technology has, particularly with robotics and automation, and it has on the labor market. You know, people are afraid they're losing their jobs. I, I'm pretty sure you've heard of automated cars, right? Cars, yes, yeah. And so we know they're out there. <clears throat> and then they were testing it with buses. And I was thinking to myself, 
I will never get on a bus that's driving by itself with not a human. You know? That, 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 that just seems, I know, I watch a lot of movies, right? So I see I think hackers, I, I can, I, I, this can probably happen. Hopefully it doesn't, but I guess I, we see, I've seen like hackers like hack into a system. So like they're driving the bus or like even like for a show I saw like yesterday, there was this girl who hacked the system on a, on a train and, and the brakes didn't like work because she was controlling it. So it is dang, like dangerous in my opinion because like humans, we, okay, we're not perfect, but like we have something that robots have. We have like empathy, stewardship. Emotions. Emotions too. So I think that it is little, I understand companies trying to save money, right? Because all we all, it's all important to save money. But at the end of the day, you're getting you're getting in when you get out. So like if you want like you want to save money, you're gonna lose some quality or something. So you want you cut like 500 workers, you're probably so you're probably gonna lose like the like say for a product or like for food, like say for crackers, like you you're gonna lose like some sort of flavor because like robots can only do so much. They 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 replace like the work what the what like workers do like what humans do, but like they're gonna only do so much to a certain point because like they're not perfect just like we're not perfect but like we have certain like more things to offer in a sense compared to these machines that are trying to like that the companies you that hat that companies have in order to save money i think where we're going to see this is in the healthcare industry honestly now i've seen in um obviously shows movies and even in the news where they'll have um, doctors, you know, people, medical staff, doctors, nurses, and they're using robots to do complex surgeries um, to be able to get into places, whether it's a, some type of a scope that's going through your nose, down through your throat and into your stomach, things like that are definitely in there. Um, but there's also this place where nurses, we typically think of, oh, well, we wouldn't replace nurses. Um, yeah, I could see that happening because if you have, whether it's Ebola or you have COVID, you're gonna have a place where you don't wanna send people in. So you're gonna send a robot in there to go give the shot or administer whatever the, the medicine is because you don't wanna have um, the disease coming back out. So, so I think it's gonna be a way that they will put uh, healthcare professionals and move them into a different place where Administra administration of any of these um, medicines or, or in really places in the hospital where there's some pandemic or they're trying to protect, you know, masses of people and like war, we'll see that there will be more robots in that capacity. I, I actually believe that will come in. And that's going to really disrupt that labor market for healthcare for sure. Mm -hmm. The Center for Business and Economic Research found that technology technological change was responsible for 85% of the 5.6 million manufacturing jobs lost in the U.S. between 2000 and 2010. And so that would be like, you know, when you go in, I'm pretty sure you've seen like, how do they make this? You know, some documentaries uh -huh. out there, they show how they make candy, right? And they run all of this stuff. It used to be all done by hand, but now they've creative machines to whether it's processing milk or making cheese or creating candy or whatever it is, the food item, there's a better way to do it. And they do it with the making of cars. So we are actually seeing more and more of that. So where does it stop? Where's the difference uh, where the human side 
takes place and it goes back to that one of those key words is being a good steward of how we use technology in the workplace so that people do find value, they are able to work and contribute because not everybody's gonna be a, a, a programmer, you know? And if you're not a programmer, then what are the other professions that we're gonna have there? Again, stewardship, I think that'll be key. As pro progress towards the global goals will be accelerated by technology, but it's important to acknowledge that technology is not the silver bullet in all cases. While tools such as IoT can make farmers more productive, resilient, more regions in the world have surplus, surplus of food and still food hunger, face hunger due to political unrest and poor distribution. So I'm gonna use this as another example. I used to have on my phone, an alarm that would go off in the morning and let me know, oh, you know, it's time to get up. Um, I saw that Apple had changed something on my phone. I have an iPhone, as I said earlier. And when that happened, the um, alarm clock that I was using was no longer available. I went trying to find a, a similar alarm clock because I just liked how I had choices of different sounds um, and try and find something that was similar to it. I couldn't find one. They're all tied to um, some type of health and wellness side of, of an Apple app that they want me to use where it's tracking not only, you know, of course, you know, my, my weight and my exercise and what I eat, but it's also tracking my sleep. And then there's just so much to me, again, it goes back to um, intrusion, but people are relying on so much that can come just right out of one device. So the, the knowledge that, um, that we can have from technology, it is a wonderful gift, but it can also be something that we become way too reliant on. And we don't know how to do things for ourselves. Yeah, and it's like you said before about, I know for, I know in high school, we used I used to we used to play Uno in the the game Uno like with the cards all the time. I think it was a fun game, but I think the why I like playing that game was about the human interaction, like getting to actually play my friends, talk to my friends, like have their interaction. While compared to like you play like Uno on your phone now, it's not the same. Even though you're playing people like around the world, that there's no like actual like human experience you're having like at that moment. While while you while you're or like you have a, at a party. You're playing the game Uno, and you're actually like interacting with your your friends. Like you're having, like you're living in the moment. Like you're enjoying it. Like you're you're living. Like you're living. That's the point. You're living. You're you're not you're not looking at it on like a on a small on a small phone, small like screen. Like being like, oh, I got it. Yes, I got it. No, you're like you're interacting with other people. I think that's important. You have to interact with other people because I think I think that's a key. I think we I think we owe it to ourselves. So like get that human experience in as much as we can because we never know what can happen today, tomorrow, a week from now, a few months from now, a year from now. So we never know what could happen. So it's, all, it's important to get that human experience as much as you can. Mm -hmm. So what are the five technological jobs that are forecasted for 2030? I'm so, you, you did this. Oh, okay. So yeah, we, found, we did some research, we found the top five. So I'll be number one. Okay. So number one was the machine learning engineer. So when, so you would think, what's what does machine learning engineer have to do with each other? So let me explain. 
<clears throat> so there, this is a specific branch of artificial intelligence. It's ideal for those who have passion for computer science and a desire and desire career in a fast moving and exciting industry, an exciting industry. I can only imagine like, like in my, I, I remember when I was younger, I used to be really good at coding. Like it was really fast paced, but now I can't even keep up. I can't keep up. So machine, so no, now I'm getting out, getting out, of, out of place. So, okay, back on schedule. So machine learning engine engineers use big data to create complex algorithms to ultimately program a machine, such as we spoke about before, self-driving cars or digital voice assistants, in order to perform or, and carry out tasks like, a, like humans. Economic forecasting image, economic forecasting, image recognition, and natural language processing are implemented so that the machine can learn and improve without human interference. The average salary for this career is 119,518. So one of the things that came out, I don't know, it's probably like 15 years ago, I want to say, there was um, a train your dragon. It, now, I know it's a movie, but there was a, a technology, a piece of technology where you could speak into um, the, whether it was installed on your computer or your phone, you could be able to say, uh, you're training that, piece, that uh, device um, to be able to recognize your voice and to interact and um, help you to do things like, like you do with uh, Alexa, like call, call mom all that. So my phone does that too. And I had to set it up here so that it would recognize my voice. And I would go, Hey, Siri, and it's probably going to come on. I'm going to hope that it didn't. It did not. So that's really where they're talking about some of that um, natural language processing is recognizing it either through our voice, but it is also in identifying key words that are used repetitively over, over and over again. So that's where um, the computers can, you know, pick up some of the words that we use, and they're doing auto auto correct and auto um, predictions of what we want to say when you start typing something, and the whole phrase of it comes out, and you go, "Well, how did it even know that's what I wanted to say?" That's machine learning and natural language, right there. So a UX designer, UX means user experience. These are designers that are concerned with the behind the scenes design of ensuring software. So it's all about what it looks like on the front end, not how you interact with it. It's all about what does it look like? Is it aesthetically pleasing? Is it a really a good flow? Can you move from one section around to the other? So we see that with websites or apps that are meeting, you know, looking at how consumers are actually interacting with that piece of technology. Again, website or phones, um, the motivations and the behaviors that are needed because so many times we just like touch stuff. We're not reading, we're not paying attention, we're mm -hmm. just touching stuff. So they're tracking all of that as we, interact with our phones. So with more and more businesses turning to digital platforms to perform and sell their products and services, it's never been so important as it is now to ensure that the user journey and experience is the best it can be. So my friend Irving has always told me it's about um, reducing friction, reducing user friction. So today I was trying to do something on my phone and honest to goodness, it was taking me I don't know, 
it was earlier, way earlier. I said, this is ridiculously long. I was trying to get my LinkedIn uh, login and get the code from one area and put it into my LinkedIn so I could possibly reset my LinkedIn password. And it, I spent 15 minutes on this and I went, that's user friction. That is exactly the thing that is a bad UX experience there because you don't want it to be something where somebody is is walking away or saying, no, I don't want to use it anymore. That salary, the average salary is like 85,000. That might be for somebody, it depends on where they are in the United States and how much experience they would have, but that's probably like, I don't know, around mid-level, mid-level person. And you know, you may be questioning, well, why is a UX designer less being paid less than the machine learning engineer? You know, it's a graphic designer can now be a UX designer. They don't have to have tons of programming experience. It's all about making beautiful looking sites that make people want to stay there. So robotics engineer, that's you, you're up. So as technology continues to evolve at a rapid pace, robotic, robotic engineers are, are having to constantly analyze, reevaluate, configure and test and maintain prototype prototypes, robotic components, integrated softwares and machines they create for the manufacturing, mining, and automotive service industry, among others. It's a, it is a highly technical job which requires patience and rational thinking. I think, in my opinion, I think any job requires that because you need to be, especially, I used to work in retail, so I think you need to be really, really patient with some people, but I'm getting off track, okay. So over the next few years, it's likely that we'll see a number of new and innovational ways in which modern technologies help society and business function, particularly in the healthcare industry. The average salary for this career is eighty-four thousand two hundred sixty-eight. That's probably me, like mid. That's probably like mid or like like, like mid level. Mid -level. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> so I like the fact that there's robotics. You know how I was mentioning um, ITSEC earlier, the simulation and training one? There are so many robotics uh, you know, that are on, on the ground and it's over the whole, one of the big giant uh, concourses over there where you can go on iDrive for that convention center. But you'll also see they've got robotic programs that are there in the schools for kids to participate in and they're building all kinds of things. You know, Rock'em Sock'em Robots, that was like the biggest thing that was like a long time ago. But, you know, these are actual machines, robots that can go and do something for humans. You know, they can go and pick up something and bring it back. I posted something on my LinkedIn with robots and they were doing a dance with some of the music from, I don't know, I can't remember. It was like a couple months ago, but um, some some type of really fast moving music, but they were like, <laughs> you know, doing the Saturday Night Live. Thing. It was just so entertaining and it made, I don't know, it made me smile. But I, I was amazed at how well they were interacting. And I had to think that there was somebody behind the scenes that was making it do that, but I really don't know. But it was like MIT people, super brilliant people. Okay, so data scientists, they are, this is dubbed the sexiest job of the 21st century. And if that is possible, a data science jobs aren't new, 
And they are emerging like other tech jobs, but they're in that space of cloud computing. Um, they are also the machine learning engineers. So anything that's really, really stretching the limits for us of how we are collecting information and, and uh, how that information is being used to, uh, we'll say supposedly make our lives easier. As businesses and organizations collect and use more data every day, the demand for skilled experts has skyrocketed. And again, they're taking all of this, this behavior and how we are using these devices to be able to be more predictive with what, what do we want to see? What do we want to watch? How, what do we want to buy? So in some senses, it is, um, you could say that it's, it is determining our course and how we want to do things. So it's again, stewardship. I'm gonna go back to that word. It's very important to maintain that word. So a data scientist is um, one of the things that they do is compile, process and analyze data and they use it to make help people make more informed decisions. That average salary is 92,168. So last one is cloud engineers. So what do we have about that one, Caesar? Over the last few months, cloud computing has become a must have for those working remotely. And that's pretty obvious because I know for us, we use a drive, but it could be, it's on the cloud. It's kind of on the cloud, we think about it. But it, is, it is, it is. Okay. Yeah. So at the same time, organizations have been frantically hiring those with the skills and knowledge who can migrate processes, implement the, necess the necessary infrastructures, and perform cloud-related tasks. Cloud engineers are often tired under different roles, including solution architects, cloud developers, I'm probably going to butcher this, uh, this part, so software SIPs, I probably pronounced that, engineers, I probably butchered that. In some instances, the role and responsibilities will vary. But the overall responsibility of a cloud engineer is basically to plan, monitor, and manage an organization's cloud systems, such as Google Cloud, Microsoft 365, and Slack, to name a few. The average salary for this career is 123,437. That's probably mid-level. Mm -hmm. So just so our listeners know, this is just touching on the tip of the iceberg as to what you can actually look for when you're looking for jobs in technology. It's not limited to programming. It really isn't. However, it's always going to be about collecting data. It will be about that user experience. It's about what's going on behind everybody touching that phone and interacting with it. So it's just something to be aware of, just making sure that we're sharing that because we are about the future of work. So we want to say thank you to Cat5 Studios, um, our video and audio team. Thank you, Caesar, Ashley, and Steve Nice. And then also for our employers, please visit us at internpursuit.tech. And so until our next show, good night and have a great life. Goodbye.